Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Today I'm going to be beginning a series of podcast episodes in which I'll be talking about the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, or the, the passages about the creation of the universe, the creation of human beings, and the fall. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 are some of the most hotly debated passages in the Old Testament. There is a ver- plethora of differing interpretations of Genesis 1. Uh, There's the calendar day view, which says that God created everything in a material sense, uh, ex nihilo, over a period of seven 24-hour days. There's the day-age view, which says that each of the days of Genesis 1 are long periods of time, which, uh, indefinite periods of time, and this this could match up with Modern science, which says that uh, everything was created over billions of years, and what happens on these, what these days represent, are really long epochs: day one, day two, day three. These are really uh, millions or even billions of of years in length. And so, if you just stretch out the days, then there's no conflict between modern science and Genesis one. There's the framework hypothesis that says that days 1, 2, and 3 are days of filling. Days 4, 5, and 6 are days of... I mean, days 1, 2, and 3 are days of uh, realm creating. The sky, the land, uh, the sky, the seas, and the land. And then days 4, 5, and 6, God creates everything to fill those uh, those realms. Uh, sun, moon, and stars to fill the sky. He created on day 1. The heavens, uh, the fish... And the birds to fill the to, to fill the seas on uh, day two, and of course land animals and people to occupy the terrestrial space created on day three. So it's a literary framework. It's poetry. It wasn't meant to be a literal uh, chronological seven-day account in which God brought everything into being. It's it's a metaphor. There, there's a whole host of differing interpretations of Genesis 1. And I'm not going to pretend to be doing anything different here. I'm going to be presenting uh, an interpretation that I adhere to, that after very intense study of Genesis, I have come to the conclusion that this is most likely the correct interpretation of Genesis 1. Now, of course, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, and if I find reasons to doubt it, or even to completely dislodge it, uh, then I'll, I'll admit problems with it. But I've looked at a lot of criticisms of this view, and I haven't found any of them that even seriously challenge the, the model, much less refute it. And that view is going, it's, I like to call it the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View. It is 
it was most popular. Uh, it was most popularly defended in John Walton's book, *The Lost World of Genesis One: Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate*. John Walton uh, really got this interpretation of Genesis off the ground, as it were, uh, and popularized it. Most people who know this view or who hold this view was were introduced to it through John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. John Walton also defends it in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2-3 and the Human Origins Debate, which he, he defends it... Uh, in the first half of his book, before getting to Adam and Eve, sort of laying the groundwork uh, before he gets to human origins and uh, the whole Garden of Eden account, because uh, he said uh, in an interview with Nick Peters on the Deeper Waters podcast that he wasn't going to assume that people who were reading The Lost World of Adam and Eve had already read The Lost World of Genesis 1. He also talks about it in his NIV application commentary uh the the Genesis edition the NIV application commentary it's a very it's a whole series of books uh, comment commentating on books of the Bible and John Walton was in charge of Genesis the other books of the Bible have different authors uh, commentating on them uh, he does it goes into it a little bit in his book Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament which I recently interviewed John Walton on. Uh, and, yeah, so, and Inspiring Philosophy has made a couple of videos about it. So that's going to be an interpretation I'm going to be defending in this podcast episode. I've written some blog posts on it. So, let's get started. Now, what, first of all, what we have to ask, well, first of all, we need to establish the correct interpretive framework for reading Genesis. Most Christian interpreters take an approach called concordism. Now, what is concordism? Concordism, as the name would suggest, seeks to find concord between the Bible and science. Whatever the Bible says about, um, about cosmic origins and whatever science says must be in complete agreement. And... If there is any disagreement, then the science must be wrong, or the, or our interpretation of the Bible must be wrong, and one of them must be adjusted because they got to be in agreement. What what science says about what happened, uh, about cosmic origins and uh, life's origins, and what the Bible says, they they got to fit like a hand in glove. And some would argue that when you do science correctly. Yeah, you find that you find that oh, it's the the chronology is is just perfect, and you know that, and they use this, they even use this as an argument that Genesis is divinely inspired because how could Moses get all of these? If he was just making this up, how could he get the chronology just so accurate? Hugh Ross makes this argument. Of course, the it's a little bit flawed because science says that marine life came before plant life, marine life came into being 500 million years ago, according to science, and plant life came into being, you know, the first forests sprouted up 300 million years ago. That's the reverse in Genesis, in which you have plant life on day three and ocean life on day five. So, stretching out the days doesn't necessarily 
uh, make them make science and the Bible fit. Uh, young Earth creationists like Ken Ham take a concordist approach, but whereas they whereas they read science into the Bible and they accept most of the consensus of modern science, they uh, you know the old Earth creationists they accept the the consensus of modern science and they read that into the bible and they say oh look at how look at how genesis and science match just perfectly all you have to do is just stretch out the days and there's no problem uh young earth creationists say no these days are not long periods of time they've got to be 24 7 uh 24 hour days one week six thousand years ago and everything that science says is wrong, and so we've got to we've got to do our own science. We've got to hire answers in Genesis. We've got to hire our own scientists, like Jason Lyle, to uh, do the research and, and provide us with evidence that, that Genesis is scientifically accurate. Well, well, you know, I think that this the entire framework. Uh, when I first started studying Genesis, I had presupposed a interpretive framework that was really wrong from the get go, namely that the Bible was intending to convey an account of material origins, that Genesis 1 was supposed to be an account of natural history. I, 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 I used to see Genesis, I was a day-ager, I held to the reasons to believe creation model, and I held, I, I viewed Genesis 1 as being kind of like the biblical version of, you know, that, that the opening to the Big Bang Theory sitcom, uh, our whole universe was in a hot, dense day, and then they just do an overview of the past 14 billion years of human history in a th in 30 seconds. Well, that's what I saw Genesis 1 as. Genesis 1 was just uh, four 14 billion years of history on one page. Just kind of, you know, kinda, Moses was kind of doing what the bare naked ladies did. They just kind of like, boom, the heavens and the earth, boom, light, boom, land and, land and seas, and <laughs> boom, trees and all that. And it was just compressed. But what if that's not what Genesis is meaning to convey? What if it's not about material origins? What if it's not an account of natural history? What if we're what if we're coming to the table with a with a false presupposition? I think we are. As John Walton says in many of his Lost World books, the Bible was written for us but it wasn't written to us. It was written to Israel in their culture, in their language, and it assumed their background. Now, and we, I'd say, I think we need to read Genesis through their eyes, through the eyes of the ancient Israelites and through Moses. This is a commonly accepted and established and promoted hermeneutic. I, I call it the cultural context principle. You've got to interpret scripture in its cultural context. That is how you are most likely going to get at the authorial intent, what the author intended to convey. We, we need to interpret Bible passages the way the original author and audience would have understood it. Um, I went, as my hermeneutics teacher put it... Uh, we, he said, we need to get into the shoes of the author. We need to step into his world and think as he thinks. Or as Michael Heiser often says on the Naked Bible podcast, we have to have the Israelite, uh, we have to have the Israelite in our heads as we interpret the Bible. 
So we need to ask, when we, when we read any passage of Scripture, we need to ask, is this how an ancient would have understood it? And if not, if it's likely not how an ancient reader would have understood it, then we need to jettison that interpretation. That is probably not what the author meant. And, so, but how, how can we get at the culture? How can we get that context? The Bible was written thousands of years ago in another country. So their culture is not our culture. Their ways of thinking are not our ways of thinking. That much is, is certain. But how can we get at their ways of thinking? How can we, as my hermeneutics teacher at, at Five Point Church in uh, Spartanburg put it, you know, get into the shoes of the ancient Israelite? Or how can we, as Michael Heiser said, have the Israelite in our head as we're reading the Bible? Well, this is where, this is where surveying the literature of the ancient Near East can really help. A survey of ancient Near Eastern literature can give you clues into how the ancients would understand things, such as what the sky is made of, uh, the shape of the earth, what the entrails are for, and so on. And another way is to look at the original language of the biblical text itself. The Bible was inspired in Hebrew, not in English, and therefore some Hebrew words uh, may carry meanings or connotations that get lost in translation. What does it mean for something to exist? Ontology is the term that philosophers use to refer to the concept of existence. Ontology is what it means for something to exist. In our culture, we assume a material ontology. What it means for the recliner I'm sitting in right now to exist on a material ontology is that it has physical properties. It's made of fabric and wood, and it's got mechanical gears that make it switch from sitting mode to reclining mode and and you can see it and feel it and you know if you're if you're weird enough you can <laughs> you can smell it that's what it means for something to exist on a material ontology but on a functional ontology it what it means for a recliner to exist is that it functions as a recliner it, or to use a to use a different object. Let's talk about my computer. My computer on a material ontology, you could say my computer exists because it has physical properties. It's got a screen. It's got a it's got a motherboard and circuitry and keys. It's got a keyboard and a mouse and it's plugged up to electricity and it's got all my documents and pictures and memes that I've saved. Oh, so many, many memes. Uh, that's what it means. You can see it. You can feel it. You can smell it if you're weird enough. And if you're really weird, you can taste it. Please don't lick my computer. <laughs> that's, that's the material ontology. But a functional ontology... What it means for my computer to exist is that it functions as a computer for me. I can surf the internet on it. I can write blog posts. I can, um, I can, I can write blog posts. I can make memes and and post them on Facebook. I can talk to my friends over Skype. Um, I can write books on Microsoft Word or 
or at, at least that's how I wrote the first two books. I wrote the, I wrote My Redeemer Lives and The Case for the One True God using Google Docs. I have a love-hate relationship with Google Docs because it's convenient because it saves it in the cloud automatically, but it can be a little slow and laggy at times. Uh, but anyway, that's that's what it means for my computer to exist in a functional sense. Now, what if, God forbid, because I can't afford to get a new computer right now, what if my computer just blew up for no reason? Just boom! It just stopped working. Well, would my computer still exist? Um, someone who holds to a material ontology would say yes. They can still feel it, smell it, uh, see it, smell it, feel it, taste it. It's still there. But on a functional ontology, you would say, no, the computer doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist because you can't surf the internet. You can't write blog posts. You can't write books. You can't upload podcasts. You can't um, look at memes. You can't do anything. It's busted. It's just a, it's just a, a hunk of junk sitting there. So it doesn't exist. That's the difference between a material ontology and a functional ontology. Now, why is this important? Because I think we can all agree that what it means to create something means to, br it, at minimum, it means to bring something from non-existence into existence. To create something is to bring something into being for... Uh, from non-being, from non-existence into existence. I think everyone across all cultures and, and time periods can agree that that's what it means to create. If you created something, it previously did not exist, and after you created it, it did exist. But what is, it, but what is meant by existence? Is it material? What, what is your ontology? Depending on your ontology will will mean will define what it means when you say you created X. So what ontology is the author of Genesis having? Is does he have a material ontology? So when he says God created this and God and so God created that and da 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 and there was evening and there was morning, the the X the end day. What, is, what does he mean by create? What is his ontology? We, well, I would argue, and John Walton would argue, and so would Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, and several other Christian Old Testament scholars would argue, I mean, not that I'm a scholar, uh, but, you know, Christians, lay people, and scholars alike would argue that the cognitive environment, what I mean by cognitive environment is just it's the way that people thought in that culture. Uh, the cognitive environment of the ancient Near East was a functional ontology, and we can see that by looking at a lot of their texts. The Egyptian papyrus Ensinger is from the Ptolemaic period. Although the manuscript comes from the first century after Christ, the material within the manuscript dates much earlier to either the second or third century before Christ. Uh, approximating closely to the climax of this document, the document describes 18 lines of the creative handiwork of the god. And th this is what the Egyptian papyrus Ensinger says, quote, 
He created light and darkness, in which is every creature. He created the earth, begetting millions, swallowing them up and begetting again. He created day, month, and year through the commands of the Lord of command. He created summer and winter through the rising and setting of Sothis. He created food before those who are alive, the wonder of the fields. He created the constellation of those that are in the sky, so that those on the earth should learn from them. He created sweet water in it, in which all the lands desired. He, create, he created breath in the egg, though there is no access to it. He created birth in every womb from the semen which they received. He created sinews and bones out of the same semen. He created going and coming in the whole earth through the trembling of the ground. He created sleep to end weariness, waking for looking after food. He created remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. He created the dream to show the way to the dreamer in his blindness. He created life and death before him for the torment of the impious man. He created wealth for truthfulness, poverty for falsehood. He created work for the stupid man, food for the common man. He created the succession of generations so as to make them live. End quote. Here, the functional nature of this creation text is overwhelmingly evident. The God is said to have created summer and winter. Why? For the rising and setting of Sothis. Moreover, seasons such as summer and winter aren't material objects. It says that he created food for the sake of living creatures. That's why he created food. That's why the God created food. He created food before those who are alive, the wonders are the fields. He created food to feed them. He created the constellation of those that are in the sky. Why? What, what, for what purpose? It says, so that those on the earth should learn from them. That's the purpose of the constellation. So that those on the earth should learn from them. Either through astrology or through uh, navigation at sea or what have you. It's, it's, the constellation is, is meant to teach inhabitants of the earth. It says that he created remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. He created the dream to show the way to the dreamer in his blindness. He created life and death before him for the torment of the impious man. He created wealth for truthfulness, poverty for falsehood. He created work for the stupid man, food for the common man. He created the successions of generations so as to make them live. This, this creation text is overwhelmingly functional in its orientation. It, it says over and over, the God created this for that. He created this, uh, this thing for this purpose and that thing for that purpose. He made this for that and this for that. He made this so that da-da-da-da-da and he made th that for da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's function. It's, it's why. It's not how. It's not concerned so much with how the God created everything, or even when the God created everything, but it's concerned with how. I mean, uh, it's concerned with why the God created everything. In the Babylonian creation epic known as Enuma Elish, uh, 
we read that we read a tale of the god Marduk opening up a can of whoop butt on all the rebel deities. And when they are defeated, the text goes on to describe his work of creation. This work of creation is to be found in the fifth tablet. And as you read it, you can clearly see the functional orientation of the created creatures. John Walton, in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, outlines these functional features as follows. John Walton writes, quote, Lines 1 to 24 show Marduk organizing the celestial sphere, stars, constellation, the phases of the moon. Lines 25 to 45 are not represented in many of the translations included in the major anthologies of ancient texts. Even in their broken form, however, their basic content can be discerned. In lines 38 to 40, Marduk makes the night and day and sets it up so that there is an equal amount of light hours and night hours over the course of the year. On line 46, he fixes the watches of night and day. These creative activities have to do with organizing time. Lines 47 to 52 are more legible and deal with the creation of the clouds, wind, rain, and fog, and appointing himself to control them. Here, the functions that concern the weather are created. Line 53, lines 53 to 58 tell of the harnessing of the waters of Tiamat for the purpose of providing the basis of agriculture. It includes the piling up of dirt, releasing the Tigris and Euphrates, and digging holes to manage the catchwater. Lines 59 to 68 conclude with the transition into the enthronement of Marduk and the building of his temple and the city of Babylon, the grand climax. It is no surprise that a creation text should ultimately be about the god who controls the cosmos and about the origin of his temple. End quote. That's a quote from John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Now, let's look at a third creation myth in the ancient Near East. This is a Sumerian document. It, this document predates Enuma Elish by a thousand years. In this Sumerian document, Enlil is described as being involved in creation in these same areas. That is, daytime and nighttime, fertility and foods, uh, sluices of heaven, weather and seasons. Quote, An, that's the name of the god, An, An lifted his head in pride and brought forth a good day. He laid plans for, and spread the population wide. Enlil set his foot upon the earth like a great bull. Enlil, the king of all lands, set his mind to increasing the good day of abundance, to making the night resplendent in celebration, to making flax grow, to making barley proliferate, to guaranteeing the spring floods at the quay, to making lengthen their days in abundance, to making summer... Close the sluices of heaven, and to making winter guarantee plentiful water at the quay. Here you can see, once again, functional orientation. On brought forth a good day, he set his foot upon the earth like a bull, and he set his mind to increasing the good day of abundance. He, he, he made the night resplendent in celebration. He made flax grow, barley proliferate. He made spring floods at the quay. He he made summer close the the sluices of heaven and made winter guarantee plentiful water at the at the quay. This is all 
This is all function-oriented. It's not so concerned with how the night was made resplendent in celebration or when it, the night was made resplendent in celebration. It's not concerned with how flax grows to how barley proliferates to how the, the spring the spring floods are guaranteed at the quay. Nor is it concerned with when these things happened or how long it took on to do these things. The, the author of this creation myth is concerned with the functions. Why did On make these things? Why did On set these things up? Finally, let's look at um, let's look at one more. No, let's look at two more uh, ancient Near Eastern documents. Let's look at the Egyptian instruction of Merakari. The instruction of Emer. Uh, sorry. The, uh, the instruction of Merakari says, quote, Well tended is mankind, God's cattle. He made sky and earth for their sake. He made breath for their noses to live. They are his images. Uh, they are his images who came from his body. He made for them plants and cattle, fowl and fish to feed them when he weeps. Uh, when they weep, he hears, end quote. Notice the strong functional orientation in the Egyptian instruction of Merakari. Over and over again, functions are emphasized. He made this for that, and this for that, and this for that purpose. In Assyrian Car 4, we read, after heaven was separated from earth, its firm companion, so that so the mother goddesses could live there, after building up the earth to make the ground firm, when the designs were made firm in heaven and earth to establish levee and irrigation ditch in good order, the great gods, the Anuna, the great gods, sat down in a lofty dice, Enlil himself deliberated, end quote. This is only a small sampling of ancient Near Eastern text. <clears throat> now, we can see that the ancient Near Eastern cognitive environment was functional in its ontology and in its creation. They weren't concerned with how the gods made everything. They weren't concerned with when the gods made everything. They weren't concerned with how long it took the gods to make everything or what or what processes they used. They, what they were concerned with, what they wanted to know, was why the gods made everything. Why did the gods make, make the sun, moon, and stars and 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 fish and animals and people and everything. You know, what? what is the purpose of everything? Why did the gods make these? Now, we have to be open to the fact that the Bible could take a different approach. The Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God, as 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So, and we also know that the biblical authors didn't always... Uh, think with the ancient Near East. Sometimes they took a radically different approach. They, you know, the ancient Near East, uh, the ancient Near Eastern peoples, they were polytheists. They, they could worship many gods, and, and it was no problem. But for Israel, although, you know, if you read the Divine Council stuff, not going to go off on a tangent, but, uh, you know, they, they didn't deny the they were henotheists. They didn't deny the existence of other gods. Nevertheless, they were supposed to only worship Yahweh. 
because only Yahweh is deserving of worship, and, and he demanded loyalty to them. As the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And they viewed Yahweh alone as being responsible for the creation of the cosmos. No other gods participated. So they did detract from the ancient Near Eastern cognitive environment at times. So the, the purpose of going into the ancient Near Eastern literature is not to determine or guide our interpretation of... It's not to determine our interpretation of Genesis, but... If we look at the biblical text and we find that an, a functional ontology and a functional-oriented view in the Bible, then we can look at the ancient Near East and say, oh, well, that, that, that's not as odd as it would be to our modern Western sensibilities that this kind of creation text was common back then so it just it's it, it doesn't determine the interpretation but it reinforces the point so let's look at the biblical text first thing we need to do is first thing we need to do is look at the creation verbs used in genesis bara and asa Bara and Asa. These are the Hebrew words that are translated in our English Bibles as create and make, respectively. And remember, the Bible, sorry KJV only is, but the Bible was inspired in Hebrew and Greek, not in English. And so, we can't assume that the English word create and the English word make we we can't we we can't assume that these words their hebrew counterparts had the same meanings or the same connotations or the same uses usages of course even our english word create can be used uh in a functional in a non-material sense we can create a havoc we i, I can create a havoc i can create a curriculum you know even the, a curriculum involves physical things in the end, but the planning of the curriculum, the curriculum itself is not material. I can create uh, I can create a committee, and that doesn't mean that I uh, poof the members of the committee into being out of nothing. It just means that I assemble people for the task of doing stuff committees do. But English is not our focus. We need to look at the Hebrew, bara and asa. Now, a lot of, uh, many, many, many scholars argue that bara means to create out of nothing. And so when it says that, and, and this is the argument that Hugh Ross gives for why the Bible is incompatible with evolution. He says that bara means to, to create out of nothing, to create something that wasn't in existence before. And so when God baras something, that couldn't have come about through material continuity, through an evolutionary process. God had to have poofed it into being. One of, and one of the arguments is, well, in Genesis 1, uh, there, no material is mentioned 
in the creation manufacturing process. And yet when God speaks, you know, it says, and it was so. God, God said, let there be X. And there it was, and, and God saw that X was good. No material, no material manufacturing process is mentioned, so they argue, well, this has got to be creation out of nothing. But, if this text is about functional origins and not material origins, then we w wouldn't expect there to be a, a material being mentioned. And actually, when you look at the uses of bara in the Old Testament, many places it just can't, it cannot possibly refer to material creation at all, ex nihilo or otherwise. For example, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, we read, Create bara in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm chapter 51, verse 10. This psalm... Uh, this verse is in the context of a psalm that David was praying to God after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had arranged for the death of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. And then God sent Nathan the prophet and said, because you did this, your son is going to die. And, and, and so this is his prayer. He, he's praying for forgiveness and for cleansing and for restoration, a right relationship with God. And he says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Now, no one thinks that when David asks, create in me a pure heart, that David is asking for God to create ex nihilo, another, another blood-pumping organi uh, organism, organ, and give it to David. And put it in, in David's chest. You know, kind of make David a time lord. He'll have two hearts. No one thinks that God is, that David is requesting for God to create a new blood pumping organ, give it to David, put it in his chest, and, and, and he'll have, or to replace his heart, you know, to take his dirty, rotten heart and, and put this new blood pumping organism in his chest. No one thinks that that's what David means when he says, create in me a pure heart. No, what David means is the source of his emotions and intellect and will. Um, and God, it, it, he is asking for a God to reorient his emotions, intellect, and will towards that which is good, pure, holy, righteous, to that which agrees with him and his will, God's will. To create, to make him a better person. It's God, is, David is asking God to change his character. That's what it means when he says, create in me a pure heart. This is clearly not a material, this is clearly not a request for God to materially manufacture a blood pumping organism. Let's look at another example I, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 26. To whom will you to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him says the, the holy one lift up your eyes and see who created these who brings out their host by number calling them all by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing Isaiah chapter 40 verses 25 to 26 now in this passage God asks through the prophet Isaiah to whom he will compare God with. God tells him to look to the heavens. If we want an idea of what God is like, we are to consider the vastness of the cosmos. Now, now 
the point I want to make here is that when God says, who created these, the stars, he who brings them out, brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. While we moderns, we know that stars are gigantic burning balls of gas thousands or millions of light years away, the original audience Isaiah was addressing did not. Ancient Israelites did not know that the sun, moon, and stars were physical objects. They considered them non-physical. Therefore, reading the text like an ancient would, we have to say that when God speaks of creating the stars, he isn't referring to the manufacturing of anything material. Stars were not material in their thinking. Let's look at another example. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, King James Version. Now, although the English word here is form, the Hebrew word is bara, which is usually translated as create. Now, we know that darkness is not a physical substance. Darkness is the absence of light. And moreover, according to the ancient Near Eastern thinking, again, they didn't consider light to be anything physical. Now, we know that they're photons and, and wave particles, but they didn't know that. They considered, if they couldn't, if it wasn't tangible, if they couldn't grab hold of it, it wasn't physical. Now, this verse says in the King James Version that God creates evil, and many atheists have used this verse to, to, to impugn the, the character of God, and, and many divine determinists, Calvinists, have used it to support the view of divine determinism. Oh, see, it says God, it says God creates evil, so why are you objecting to the idea that God could causally determine people to do evil? That's really not a good translation. Mo uh, and that's why most modern translations don't render the word that way. It doesn't even make any logical sense. Think about it. It says God, he's making a contrast here. He's making light and darkness, peace and evil. The opposite of peace is not evil. The opposite of peace is disruption, calamity, disaster. And that's how many modern translations render it. They render it God, disaster, uh, such a, the New International Version, the NIV, CSB, and HZSB uh, translates it as disaster. The, the NLT translates it as bad times, and the ESV and Berean Study Bible translates it as calamity. I think all of these are, are, are better translations than evil. But however you translate it, whether you really want to say, oh, it's, it's, it's supposed to be translated evil, or whether you, it's calamity, bad times, disaster, none of these are material things, and yet it says... The tech, and yet Isaiah 45 7 says God creates them. So, and there are many other examples in which bara is used and no material thing comes into being at all. No material be there's either a change in function or or something else, but there's no material object being manufactured, especially not being manufactured ex nihilo. Another example, Isaiah 34, 10. And he said, Behold, I make bara a covenant before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nations. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. That's Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, King James Version. A covenant is not material. Now, a covenant can involve material things like circumcision and the Abrahamic covenant, uh, for example, but the covenant itself is not material. 
no, moreover, notice that covenants bring order to a system. In a covenant, things go well when both sides keep their, their end of the bargain. Now let's look at the other creation verb, asa. Uh, asa, most Bible students are told, means to make or to do. That's, that's what asa means, and, and so if it means to make, it obviously refer, refers to material creation, right? No, any Hebrew lexicon will tell you that asa doesn't always refer to making, but also to doing. It means to make or to do. And in some instances, it's even translated as prepare or appointed. For example, 1 Samuel 12.6 says, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Asa, Moses, and Aaron, who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Obviously, we don't read this verse and think that God made Moses and Aaron ex nihilo. No, he assigned them to the function of being the deliverers of the Israelite out of bondage in Egypt. Now that we've looked at, at how these verbs are, uh, these creation verbs are used in other places in the Old Testament, let's look at the text of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when I was an old earth creationist, when I was a day-ager, I agreed wholeheartedly with Hugh Ross that this, that this Bible verse was talking about the Big Bang, the creation of the universe out of nothing 14 billion years ago. But I've come to realize that that's not really what the text means. In fact, um, I think that the translation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is not a proper translation to begin with. Michael Heiser wrote that, quote, If you are dependent on your English Bible, you most likely think of the Bible in terms of verses. You need to realize the verses of the Bible are arbitrary and not part of the original text. We need to look at Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 the way a Hebrew grammarian does, as a set of clauses. In case you have tried to forget English grammar, or have poor English teachers, clauses are not the same as sentences, though the terms can overlap. For our purposes, a clause is a string of words that present a, a, th a single thought. The clause will often have a subject and a verb. The man ran, man equals subject, ran equals verb, that together express the simple thought. However, a clause may not have a noun subject. Look out, and may have a verb. You jerk. All that matters is that a single thought is expressed. In the nounless example, the subject is not stated, but a single thought is expressed. The speaker wants you or someone else to get out of the way. In the verbless example, the single thought is that the person, the, the speaker is speaking to, is a jerk, or is behaving like a jerk, end quote. Michael Heiser has, goes on to argue in this article uh, that I'm quoting from, that is in the footnotes of my blog post, The Cosmic Temple Inauguration View of Genesis 1, uh, he, he went on to argue that the Hebrew Masoretic vowel points and the wording of the Greek Septuagint do not imply that Genesis 1-1 should contain the phrase, in the beginning. Why? Because in the Hebrew there is no definite article. Since there's no definite article, Genesis 1-1 should be translated as when, 
not in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. This may appear to be a very inconsequential change at first, but it makes a huge difference. Changing in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth to when God created the heavens and the earth, it makes Genesis 1-1 a dependent clause. Genesis uh, verse 1 is a dependent clause, verse 2 is a circumstantial clause, and verse 3 is the main clause. When God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. When God created the heavens and the earth, dependent clause, the earth was without form and void. That, actually, I think it should be translated unproductive and waste. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Circumstantial clause. Main, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Main clause. It, de, uh, dependent clause, circumstantial clause, main clause. Now, what this implies is that when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was already there. There was already land, and there was already water. Earth and water was already there when God showed up to create. When God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was, form was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Where did the deep come from? Where did the earth come from? The text doesn't say since Genesis 1-1 is not an independent clause, not a, talking about a creation point out of nothing, we, we, given this, the text begins with material already present. Now, what about the... the um, let, me, let me talk very quickly about verse 2. Formless and void. The Hebrew there is tohu and wabohu. In John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, he has an entire chart uh, in which the terms uh, tohu is used. To bohu, the term bohu never occurs by itself. It always occurs with, in conjunction with tohu. But tohu, whenever tohu is used in all of these places that John Walton has in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, a lot of them have don't they described things being non-functional or purposeless um, like I think it's in Deuteronomy there's a verse that talks about the 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 wilderness the desert being tohu uh, it talks about idols being tohu worthless un, uh, you know they don't do anything for anybody um, and it says that the people who make them, are tohu. The people who make idols are tohu. Many places that John Walton charts, it, it clearly it means that tohu can be translated as purposeless, functionless, worthless, superfluous. It's just is there's no point. Any something that is tohu, there's no point to it. And so the old uh, the. Old Testament scholar David Samora, on the basis of of this, of all the uh, of all the ways that tohu is used in in the Old Testament, he argues that uh, uh, that verse two of Genesis one should be translated 
the earth was un was an unproductive waste an unproductive the earth was an unproductive wasteland and darkness was over the surface of the deep and i agree with him John Walton argues that the reason so many of our English Bible translations translate verse 2 as the earth was without form and void is that they are presupposing that Genesis 1 is about material origins when they translated the text. So, you know, it's without form and void. But shapelessness is not, that's not how tohu is used anywhere else. In the Old Testament. In fact, there is a a verse in, uh, in Jeremiah, and uh, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy uses this to uh, as to hearken back to Genesis one, uh, and I think this really makes the functional view, the the non-material view of of, of Genesis one, really powerful because. When you read Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 to 28, you can see that it uses a lot of the same language as Genesis 1. And I'm going to read that passage now. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, tohu wabohu, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end." For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have relented, nor will I... I have not relented, nor will I turn back. We see a lot of the... Uh, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy argues that what, what we have here in Jeremiah is a reversal of creation language, of what happens in Genesis 1. Uh, instead of there... It, it, it starts out, the earth is formed... The, is formless and void. Now, are we supposed to imagine that after, the, you know, the context is the judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem, for turning away from God to idols, and Babylon comes and they lay the, the city to waste and they carry off a lot of captives. Are we to think that what Jeremiah is saying here is that after the Babylonian captivity, the entire planet Earth is destroyed and it's returned to that watery waste. There's no, you know, it's a, it's a water world, as John, as you know, as he Ross views chapter two. It's the, it's before, it's uh, four billion years ago when the earth was only water. There was there were no land masses or plants or anything like that. Is that what is that what Jeremiah is saying here? I mean, he says he looked on the earth and it was without form and void. He says he looked at the heavens and they had no light. So is Jeremiah saying that the sun is gone, the sun and the stars, there, you know, there's no light at all? There, there's no, I looked and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. Oh, so humankind is extinct? Well, then who is writing the account? <laughs> this is, I mean, this is, these are ridiculous interpretations. What 
is clearly being described here is is that because of the destruction of the city, because of uh, of you know the subheader in my English Bible here says anguish over Judah's desolation, because of Judah's desolation, Judah no longer exists in a functional sense. It's no longer functioning as a city or a nation, whatever whatever Judah was. I'm not very good at geography. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, that's why he's using this language, this reversal of creation language, because Judah doesn't exist anymore, at least not in a material sense. And so, maybe, since this is what the Old Testament ancient Near East, this is what... This, this is how he described the destruction of Jerusalem, then maybe when, Genesis, when Moses in Genesis uses the same language, he's using functional ontology to describe the creation of the universe. Let's go to verse 3. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. I mean, not day three. Verse three, day one. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Okay, so we're done with day one. Now, a couple of things need to be noticed here. Uh, need, need to be noted here. What, God says, let there be light, and it says that God called the light day. Why didn't God call the light light? Why didn't he just call light what it physically is, light? Why call it day? Day and night are not synonyms. I mean, day and light are not synonyms. And, and he called the darkness night. Well, why didn't he just call the darkness darkness? Darkness and night are not synonymous terms. Well... What, what's clearly going on here is that the author is employing a figure of speech known as metonymy. Metonymy is when you is when you switch a cause for its effect or an effect for its cause or describe something using a related term. One example would be as if I said, I hate rage against the machine. Now, when I say I hate rage against the machine, that doesn't mean that I hate the band members. I don't have anything against them. And as a Christian, I'm not supposed to hate anybody. I, I don't. I don't have anything against the, the band members of Rage Against the Machine. So what do I mean? I mean I don't like their music. I have never been a fan of that band. <laughs> and, and so I'm talking about their music, but I'm, 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 I'm describing the band. I'm using a. I'm talking about a cause as though it were its effect. So that's one example of metonymy. So when God calls the light day, he's referring to a period of light. That's what day is. Day is a period of light. And it's way too short in the winter, I might add. <laughs> and he calls the darkness light, uh, night. What is night? Night is a period of darkness. So what God creates on day one is time. He creates daylight hours and nighttime hours. Day, light and darkness. Day and night. That's what God creates on day one. 
that and that is in verse 5 and that makes sense of verse 4 when it says that God separated the light from the darkness that can't mean that God separated physical light from physical darkness everyone knows that physical light and physical darkness cannot be together in any in any meaningful sense darkness is the absence of light where there is light there cannot be darkness but if it's a separation of a period of light and a period of darkness, that makes sense. These can be separated. You can have a period, alternating periods of day and night, light and darkness. This is clearly function. It's time. God creates time. Time is not a material thing, at least not in the ancient thinking. Now, you may say, well, well time is a material thing. You know, the space-time fabric of the universe. And, and you know, and, Okay, listen. They were not thinking in terms of A theory and B theory. Okay? Again, we need to read the text with ancient eyes. They, When they thought of time, they thought of the sun rising and the sun setting. They were not thinking all of the complex and philosophical and scientific theories of, of time that we have. They didn't see time come as coming into being at the Big Bang. So on day one, God, when God created alternating periods of light and darkness, according to an ancient mindset, that meant, oh, God created time. Time exists now. And this also explains why... Uh, an odd feature that uh, commentators have noted for years. You know, why is it, e when it says there is evening and there was morning the first day, why is evening mentioned first? Well, because previously there was only darkness. Now there's light. So, evening, then morning. Also, I want to, so, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people think day one, it's about the creation of the sun. You know, let there, let there be light, and then poof, there's the sun, but no, what God creates is time, light and darkness, night and day. And moreover, again, ancient Israelites weren't thinking in terms of photons and, and particles and waves. And, and They didn't know our modern physics. They didn't know what light was composed of. They thought light was immaterial. So if, a, if this is a material ontology, then we have to conclude that God doesn't really create anything material on day one. There's no material manufacturing involved. Light is not a material thing. Time is not a material thing. Also, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. There's no definite article in 1-1, so it should say when God created the heavens and the earth. Tohu is most often refers to unproductive and purposeless things. So it sh verse 2 should be translated, the earth was an unproductive wasteland, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So when God showed up to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was already there. Water was already there. So if this is an account of material origins, why doesn't it begin with no material why doesn't it? If this is an account of material origins, why doesn't it begin with no material? But it does begin with material. Earth and the waters, the darkness. And then on day one, you don't have anything material being made. You have time being made. You have light being made. Light and darkness, alternating light and darkness. It's a function. Let's go to day two. 
And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Now, if you... The word expanse, the translated expanse here in Hebrew is rakia. And according to the ancient Near Eastern thinking, they they viewed the cosmos, they viewed the earth as a flat disk covered by a solid dome. The solid dome held back waters above the solid dome, and there were waters underneath the earth. And they had a three-tiered universe, three, three heavens. The first heaven was the sky where the sun, moon, and stars, and clouds, and birds flew. The second heaven, that was where the waters above existed. And then there was the third heaven. That was where God uh, had his throne. That was where people went in the afterlife. That's what we, that's what we would just call as heaven. That was their cosmology. And they and believed, they believed that the solid dome was held up by pillars. I don't have time to, to get into this, but you can look at... Uh, John Walton's book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament, for more. Or you can go to my blog post, Hermeneutics 101, Part 3, The Cultural Context. And I talk about the ancient Near Eastern cosmology that is not only found in other ancient Near Eastern texts, but also in many places in the Bible. So, if you view this as an account of material origins... And if you want to interpret the Bible in its ancient context, then you have to say that God created a material dome over the earth. Are you really willing to say that? We know that there's nothing up there. If there were, the astronauts would have crashed into it when they traveled to the moon. But, what if the material of the firmament, the rakia, is not the point. What if the firmament is firm? The firmament. But what if that's not the point? What if the point is what happens with the firmament? Whatever it's made out of. What does God do? He separates waters above from the waters below. He creates weather. A weather system. He sets up the weather. It's a function. Now, one cr critic of the cosmic temple view said, well, there's no mention of rain or clouds or, or, weather, or weather or anything like that. It's just, you know, there's nothing in Genesis 1 that mentions weather. You wouldn't... But that fails to understand the ancient cosmology of... The biblical author. Again, waters above, waters below, the solid dome. Uh, they believe, where, where did the ancients believe that rain came from? Well, that's where the waters above the solid dome come into play. They believed that occasional, there were windows in the solid dome sky that would occasionally open. And when these windows opened, the waters that the dome was holding back, some of it came down. 
in the form of rain. They also knew that if you dug, some water would come up from the ground. So they inferred, oh, well, there must be some water under the earth as well. This is their thinking. And it's very odd and bizarre to our scientifically informed minds. But I, I you know, I can understand. I can understand if you weren't, if all you were going on was your five senses. You know that that's not entirely unreasonable. It, it, you know, we, we have we have science. We have scientific. We have the scientific method, and we have four hundred years of uh, of mathematical models and and observations with telescopes, and and now we have really high tech machinery to inform us of what the universe looks like and how it works and all that. But you know, they they didn't have any of that. But. That's that's where the weather comes. Yes, it's not explicitly stated, but any ancient reader who read day two of Genesis one, when it says God, he he separated the waters above the earth from the waters below the earth. He made the expanse. They would have said, oh, yeah, he's setting up the weather system. He's putting that solid dome up in the sky, and he's separating these two bodies of water, the the waters above. Behind the, the the solid dome and the waters that are under the earth, and so and he's installing. They would have seen God as installing windows, and so so that rain could come down. They they would have understood that God just wasn't making the sky, which doesn't make sense anyway. I mean, if he if he created the planet Earth, the sky would be the, the sky would be there by default. The sky is that which which is above. The, the land it's not it's not like you can have a planet and not have a sky if you have a planet you have a sky along with it so on a material origin and especially especially looking at it through modern lenses it doesn't make any sense to say god created the earth first and then he created the sky because if cre- if he created the planet earth he would have already had the sky there but again we're not supposed to be reading the text according to our modern lenses we need to be reading according it to, to Ancient, we need to be reading it through ancient eyes, and how ancients would have seen it is God installing weather. Let's look at day three. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed brought forth uh, fruit according... I'm sorry, I I lost my place. Plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, if you're a concordist, and if you're thinking according to day-age, or scientific thinking, you might say that, you know, this is, if you're a Hiros, he would use the term tectonic uplift. This is when, this is when dry land emerges, and then trees sprout on the earth for the very first time, and, and, and all that. But what, again, it's possible 
that. It's possible that God could be that this te the text could be saying that this is the very first appearance of trees. Uh, let me let me just say something quick. Um, a couple of people I've talked to about this interpretation said, "Well, you know, you do have a material process going on day three: dry land appearing, trees growing up from the ground and sprouting, bearing fruit. I mean that that's not a static thing. You know, something's happening there, and I would agree. I would agree." You have trees growing. That is, that's something that takes time, and that's a material process and bearing fruit. But if this is a functional text, then then what we have here is God decreeing functions for everything in the universe. And and also, and what I mean by function is not scientific function. The sun doesn't function according to an ancient near. Easterner because it's a burning ball of gas that produces light and heat. It the function here is teleological function or an anthropologically oriented function. In layman's terms that means God is decreeing how things will function for humanity. That's the interpretation that John Walton defends in The Lost World of Genesis 1 and it's the interpretation that I've adopted. And it could, what God could just be, be saying here, and this will become more clear if we look, when we look at the other, at the rest of the text, when we look, when we look at day three in context, when he says, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, what he's saying is, this is going to be the purpose of the earth. The purpose of the earth is going to be to sprout vegetation. This is going to be the purpose of plants. They're going to yield seed. This is going to be the purpose. This is going to be the function. The function of the earth is to sprout vegetation. The function of the earth is to yield seed. The function of trees is to bear fruit. And so, and it was so. What God decreed the earth would do, that's what it did. The earth brought forth. Quote, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their kind, in which is their seed, each according to their kind, and God saw that it was good. End quote. So yes, this is a material process, but this material process goes on all the time. It goes on even today. Is Genesis 1 saying that this is the very first time that trees are ever, that these are the very first trees, the very first forests? Uh, based on the rest of the text, based on the ancient Near Eastern cognitive environment, based on the rest of what the Bible says, and based on what the rest of Genesis says, I would say no. What God is doing here is not materially creating the very first plant life, but he's decreeing the function of the earth's plant life. The function of the earth's plant life is to provide food for living creatures and especially human beings. What we have on day one is the install installment of functions. Day one, on day one, God creates the function of time. On day two, God creates the function of weather. On day three, God creates the function of food. Time, weather, and food. Each of these is important for humans to live their lives. 
we all, in, in fact, a lot of our conversations revolve around these three things. Time. You know, we gotta, we gotta, we schedule our lives. We, you know, we gotta go to school at a certain time. We gotta go to work at a certain time. We gotta pick up the kids from soccer practice at a certain time. Um, you know, oh, I'm gonna have a podcast. We gotta, I'm gonna have a podcast interview with this author. We need to set up a certain time where we can both get together. And oh, by the way, are you on Pacific time or Eastern, or, or Central time or Eastern time? Or, or, you know. You, Time is very important for us to live our lives. We need to know when to be at work at a certain time. We need to know, and especially if you're uh, if you if you're a farmer in an ancient in the ancient Near East, you need to know how many daylight hours you're going to have, so you can do your work. We need weather. We need rain. You can't have food without rain, and you and we can't have water without rain. We need water. We need rain. God established that for us. He established time. He established weather. And we need food to live. God did that. God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation. Time, weather, and food. That's Those are the functions that God has established in the first three days. Let's go on to day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on on the on the earth to rule over the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day i think the fourth day as far as the functional orientation is is concerned in genesis day 4 is by far the most blatant in its functional orientation i mean even even as a modern even looking at it through modern lenses you can't miss it God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Why? To separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. Why? Why did God make two great lights? He made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. Moses is not concerned here with telling you how God made the sun, moon, and stars. He's not concerned with telling you when. He's, t he's concerned with telling you why God made the sun, moon, and stars. He made them to rule. He made the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night. He made the stars also. He made he made them to rule over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. Remember, this is the remember this is the the function of day one: light and darkness. John John Walton says that what we have on day four is an installment of a functionary. That is to say, something that carries out the function of day one. Day one is time. And on day four, 
the sun, moon, and stars. We have these are the function of the sun, moon, and God decrees that the function of the sun, moon, and stars will be to mark signs for seasons, days, and years. Time, time. Let them give light on. Uh, rule the day and rule the night. Separate light from darkness. It's to their function is to carry out the function of time on day one. Also, remember that they wouldn't have, that the ancients wouldn't have seen the sun, moon, and stars as anything material. We know that the sun is a gigantic burning ball of gas. We know that the moon is a gigantic rock orbiting the earth 239,000 miles away. We know that the stars are suns like our own, uh, millions, even billions of light years from earth. But they didn't know that. They thought they were all material. They thought they were what the text calls them, lights. So on a material ontology, if you get, if you're reading it as an ancient would, you don't have anything material being made on this day. Let's go to day five. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. This is not the Cambrian explosion. What do, God says, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. That's their function to inhabit the ocean. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Function. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Function. And let's go to day six. Day f and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the sea, and over the birds of of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on it that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. In his book, <clears throat> The Lost World of Genesis 1, Hugh Ross writes, 
I mean, uh, not Hugh Ross. John Walton writes, As with the creatures inhabiting cosmic space in day five, the animals inhabiting terrestrial space in day six are not functionaries that carry out the functions indicated in day three. Instead, they carry out their own functions in that space. The text indicates their functions relative to their kind rather than functions relative to other inhabitants. They are viewed in their categories, and they reproduce after their own kind as part of the blessing of God. Their function is to reproduce and to fill the earth. This is what God made them to do. It is the wonder of creation that new generations of the same kinds of creatures are born from parent creatures. This is the same sort of marvel as the system that allows the plants to grow from seed. One of the more intriguing elements is in these verses is the subject and verb in verse 24, let the land produce living creatures. This is clearly not a scientific mode of expression, and the interpreter should not attempt to read in it scientific concepts. What would it refer to in an ancient Near Eastern context? As already mentioned, ancient Near Eastern texts do not often speak of the creation of animals, and when they do, it is generally a brief comment in, in passing. And then he goes on to read a, an excerpt from the exploits of Ninurta. And what the exploits of Ninurta... I'm, in, I'm ending the quote here. John Walton goes on to read the exploits of, of Ninurta. The exploits of Ninurta says, Let its meadows produce herbs for you. Let its slopes produce honey and wine for you. Let its hillsides grow cedars, cypress, juniper, and box for you. Let it make abundant for you ripe fruits as a garden. Let the mountains supply you richly with divine perfumes. Let the mountains make wild animals teem for you. Let the mountains increase the fecundity of quadrupeds for you. Quote and end quote. John Walton goes on to say, quote, The role of the land, or the mountains, in producing animals does not give us material information as if this were some sort of spontaneous regeneration or a subtle indication of an evolutionary process. Rather, the land and mountain are locations of origin. This is where animal life comes from, not what it is produced from. It is similar to a child today asking where babies come from. Rather than needing a description of sperm and egg in fertilization and conception, the child only needs to be told that babies come from hospitals or from their mothers. End quote. And human beings are also given functions, uh, not the least of which is to be God's imagers. I don't have time to get into what the image of God is, what that means. I've already gone over my one-hour limit on this podcast. This podcast is going to be one hour and 30 minutes long, so I'm going to need to wrap things up quickly. But I'm going to be talking about this more in podcast episodes to come. But that that's one of the functions of human beings. Let us make man in our image. Another function, let them subdue the earth and, and rule it and multiply and we know in Genesis 2, they also were intended to uh, take care of the Garden of Eden. Now, let's move on before... I've already taken up enough of your time. Let's move on to Day 7. Now, I think, we, I think I've made a pretty good case that Genesis 1 <coughs> is not about 
fun- material origins. It's about functional origins. God is decreeing the functions of everything. On day one, two, and three, God establishes the functions of time, weather, and food. On day four, God installs function. He decrees what the functions of the sun, moon, and stars are going to be. They're going to be to uh, to to do. They're going to do what. They're going to carry out the function of day one, which is time. Uh, on day five, I, I already said that function, and on day six, we, we know we know what the the purpose of the land, the function of the land animals and human beings is going to be. Now, what about? Let's get to day seven. Day seven. Day seven isn't described in Genesis one, but it starts in it, it in gen at the beginning of Genesis two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I've been using the term the cosmic temple inauguration view of Genesis 1. Now I'm going now you're going to understand why I've been calling it that. What is day 7 about? Most Christians tend to think of day 7 as being the day where God just simply ceases from creative activity. It's as though God dusts off his hands and goes, "Well, I'm done." But Professor Walton from ancient Near Eastern literature and from the biblical text itself argues that Genesis 1 is a temple text, and that the seven days represent God inaugurating his cosmic temple, where at the end of the inauguration period, God takes up his rest. The hypothesis is that just as ancient temples were created as microcosms of the universe, what Genesis 1 does is take that idea, flip it on its head, and make the universe a macrocosm of a temple. God's work in the seven days is creating functions and functionaries to serve him and his priests, humanity, in the cosmic temple. In his review of John Walton's book, blogger AMAIC explains that, quote, In the ancient world, as soon as rest is mentioned, everyone would have known exactly what sort of text this was. God's rest in temples, and temples are built so that gods can rest in them. Rest is not a term of disengagement, but a term of engagement, i.e. everything is in place now, so the deity can take up his place at the helm in the control room of the cosmos and begin operations. Rest throughout the Bible indicates that everything is stable and secure, and life and the cosmos may proceed as they were intended, end quote. This hypothesis is supported... On the following lines of evidence, line of evidence one, ancient Near Eastern literature tells us that gods rested in temples and that temple inauguration was closely associated with cosmic origins. This is what the temple hymn of Kes says, house. Inspiring great, uh, quote, house, inspiring great awe, called with a mighty name by On, house, whose fate is grandly determined by the great mountain Enlil, house of the Anuna gods, possessing great powers, which give wisdom to the people, house, reposeful dwelling of the great gods, house, which was planned together with the plans of heaven and earth, with the pure divine powers, house, which underpins the land and supports the shrines, house, mountain of abundance, which passes the days in glory, houses of Ningershaga, 
which establishes the life of the land, house, great hillside, worthy of purification rites, altering all things, house without whom no decisions are made, house, good, carrying in its hands the broad land, house which gives birth to countless peoples, seed which has sprouts, which house which gives birth to kings which determines the destinies of the land house whose royal personages are to be revered will anyone else bring forth something as great as keck end quote um and there are some other texts i don't have time to get into but the second line of evidence is that the Bible refers to the universe using temple languages in different places. As J. Richard Middleton observes, quote, as, jo as Job and Proverbs, among many other biblical texts, suggest, creation is pictured in the Bible as a building. But creation is not just any building. The Bible follows ancient Near Eastern convention and understanding the world as God's house, that is, as a cosmic sanctuary, a temple for God to inhabit, with heaven corresponding to the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is concentrated. Much of the Old Testament treats God's presence in the Jerusalem temple as the earthly correlate of Yahweh reigning from heaven. End quote. Here are a couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 to 2 in the NRSV. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is my resting place? All these things my hand has made, and so they came into being, says the Lord. Psalm chapter 132 verses 7 to 8 says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. This passage refers to the temple as God's resting place. God rests in the temple. God rests in Genesis 1 and at the, en at the end of the creation week. And since we know from Isaiah 66 that God considers the cosmos his resting place, he considers the heavens his throne and the earth his footstool. In light of this, a strong inference can be made that God considers the cosmos his temple. And what happens in Genesis 1 is the creation of his temple in which he rests at the end. Temples don't exist unless the deity has come to take up his rest in it, and religious rituals are being performed. Without the deity and the rituals, all you have is a physical building. Just as without chefs preparing food and people placing orders, you would only have a building and not a restaurant. The temple would exist in a material sense, but not in a functional sense. God may have taken billions of years to prepare the physical structure of his cosmic temple, but the cosmic temple was not a cosmic temple until God took seven days to inaugurate it with the culmination of him taking up his rest. Line of evidence three, the number seven carried specific symbo uh, special symbolic significance for temple inaugurations. I have a quote here from Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy in his from his video, Genesis 1 and God Said. Inspiring Philosophy says, quote, the use of seven was a temple, a typical cultural symbol for a temple inauguration. The construction of the tabernacle was completed in seven stages, Exodus chapter 40, verses 19 to 32. The ordination of a priest was seven days, Leviticus chapter 8, verses 33 to 35. Solomon's temple was constructed in seven years, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. Dedicated to God during a seven-day festival on the seventh month, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2 and verse 65. Even Solomon's dedication speech was given in seven petitions, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 31 to 35. Outside of the Bible, we find this as well. The Gadea Cylinder... 2125 BC speaks of a seven-day temple dedication, and Ugar and Ugaritic texts speak of Baal 
completing his cosmic temple in seven in seven days. The point being that the seven days in Genesis 1 seem to favor a more functional understanding of the passage. The temple and the tabernacle were, pre, were constructed from pre-existing material. The materials were simply organized to function properly in the worship of the Lord, end quote. So this is the this is the evidence that that God decreed functions in Genesis one, not material origins, and it was the inauguration of His temple. Before I go, I want to say I am not denying creation out of nothing. In taking this view of Genesis, we are not saying that God did not create the universe out of nothing. Not only does the scientific evidence overwhelmingly indicate that he did, see my podcast episodes on the Kalam cosmological argument, but later biblical passages explicitly state this, such as John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and Colossians 1. So, in conclusion, Genesis 1 is an account of functional creation in a seven-day period in which God inaugurates his cosmic temple. On the last day of creation, God rests in his cosmic temple. God causes his temple, his cosmic temple, to be fully functional within a period of a week. While the cosmic temple may have taken much longer to create in a material sense, and the scientific community is unanimous in affirming that it did, creating the universe in a functional sense only took 144 hours about 6,000 to 100,000 years ago. Just as it took Solomon a long time to build Yahweh's earthly temple, 1 Kings 6 says it took him seven years, but it didn't take him that long to have the grand opening, so to speak. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. We will talk about this more in upcoming episodes. I will see you next time. God bless.